been a week, hasn't it? Oh my goodness. I know all of you all are trying to figure out what's going on, but even in the midst of all of this, I have to say thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing one of my good friends, someone who can help us get some oversight into what happened last week, uh, former South Carolina Congressman Joe Cunningham. But before I get to Joe, I wanted to talk about President-elect Biden's nominee for Attorney General Merrick Garland. In light of last week's failed coup and the overwhelming evidence that for the past four years, right-wing white supremacist domestic terrorism is now at a fever pitch and a direct threat to our lives and our democracy, it has to be the top priority for the next attorney general. That's in addition to reforming policing, which I'd consider 1B or 1A, depending on the day, as well as prosecuting the crimes of this current administration and voting rights. These four things, domestic terrorism, police reform, prosecuting the Trump administration, and voting rights, are how I think we should all judge this administration and this Justice Department for the next four years. So, the Attorney General is, in my opinion, the most important appointment that the President-elect could make. And this monologue is an open letter of sorts to the incoming Attorney General. On the fight against domestic terrorism, what should have struck everyone last week during the failed coup attempt was what appeared to be the various levels of cooperation that we saw from some Capitol Police and the rioters. As a number of members of Congress have expressed, from the rioters finding secret offices to storming past multiple levels of security, some members believe, as I do, that this must have been an inside job. And by that, I mean that you could very well have some, not all, but some, Capitol Police officers who, between taking selfies and giving rioters directions to Chuck Schumer's office, were aligned with the protesters and rioters. There is a long, well-documented history of white supremacists in law enforcement agencies, so it stands to reason that every level of law enforcement in this country contains officers who are themselves on parlor, are among the Proud Boys, watch One America News, and were themselves some of the rioters. So how can we expect these people to aggressively pursue white supremacist domestic terrorists when some of them are the people they're pursuing? And what will our next attorney general do about rooting these kind of people out of police and sheriff's departments and state police departments in addition to federal law enforcement agencies? The imperative to reform policing is just as significant. And even then, our ability to finally tackle policing in a meaningful way will depend on our ability to root out officers that are white supremacists. But we've got to admit the problem first and make it a priority to fix. And that, I think, may be a bridge too far for a lot of Democrats who don't want to believe what I know black and brown folks have known for some time. And that's that some of those who are paid to protect and serve us are racist. And in some cases, the kind of white supremacists that now pose the most significant threat to our democracy. We also can't leave this current administration's wrongdoing solely to New York Attorney General James and the Manhattan District Attorney. The Department of Justice's name is to mean something, and if we are to restore the department's reputation, it starts with righting the wrongs of the past four years, including his Department of Justice to charge Donald Trump Jr. and Rudy Giuliani with inciting a riot among whatever else will stick to them and everyone else in Trump's orbit that should be in jail, including Donald Trump himself. Finally, with the Democratic House, Senate, and White House, we need to make the John Lewis Voting Rights Act a reality. And we need a Department of Justice that will forcefully pursue voting rights cases and force states to draw fair lines in 2021 and 22 during redistricting. No attorney general has faced this many challenges coming into office. I hope Judge Garland is up to the task. Now on to my show with my friend, former Congressman Joe Cunningham. 
This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I want to welcome my brother and good friend, Joe Cunningham, to the pod today. What's going on, my brother? How are you? Good, man. Good. Thanks for having me on here. Joe is one of my my favorite, favorite politicians. I don't even know if people have favorite politicians, but he's one of my... <laughs> He's what they call a true independent thinker, even though he is probably the least attractive brother in his family. So that's just that's just where that's where we start. That's how you get your girlfriend stolen so many times, right? <laughs> How's the wife and, and fam? Everybody good on your side? Every, everybody's doing well, man. Little man is growing. You know, you got kids that age, man. Like every day, like they're discovering something new and saying something funny. And it's just uh, it's nonstop, man. I got you know, I got four older brothers who got four boys that were born in 2018 so they're all cluster around the same age and oh, wow. so uh, yeah so that's that's fun having them all you know together cool so look look joe I, I start every episode the same way because a lot of times listeners don't truly understand how my guest ended up sitting in the seats they sit in today so i want you to walk us through the arc of your career you've been an ocean engineer a yoga studio owner all of these things before running for Congress. That's definitely a first here on this podcast. Walk us through the arc of your career and why you chose to run for Congress. Yeah, of course. I'll start from the beginning. You know, uh, uh, my background's in ocean engineering, and I worked in that field for a number of years uh, before uh, number, two things happened. Number one, the economy took a dump in 2008. And I say it gave me the opportunity to explore other options, which is another way of saying that, you know, the consulting firm I was working with got you know, whittled down and I was on the, the losing end of that. So I got laid off. My father uh, was an attorney and then later a judge. And I saw the good work he was able to do uh, within the practice of law and was inspired by him. And that was always in the back of my mind. So I went back to law school, got a law degree and that was in the practice for a number of years. The yoga studio owner was, was, was my wife and I was more of like the, uh, uh, the silent partner. And, and I think she, I think she, I think she preferred me to be the very much silent part. <laughs> Emphasis on the. I silent thought you part. were. The, I thought you were the teacher. I thought you had to work no, to, to, no, to make ends no, meet. No, I can barely touch my toes, man. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want me leading the class. And so, you know, I was in the practice for a number of years, um, and I saw what was happening after, basically after Trump was elected in 2016. 
And I remember that night, like it's, you know, we all, it's one of those events where we all remember where we were, what right. we were thinking, what we were doing. And I just remember driving back from uh, the, the bar we're at, uh, where we were watching the results roll in and, and drive back with uh, Amanda and knowing that all the things that he had said on the campaign trail, all the insults to people, you know, whether it be women or, or people of color or, 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 or other folks, you know, all those things were, would be normalized within his presidency. And it's not, not a country I wanted to raise kids in. It's not a country that, that, you know, I just, I want to do something about it. Yeah. Plain and simple. Yeah. And I think, I think that inspired me again, a long shot bid against Mark Sanford. Um, it was a long shot bid. I didn't know. I mean, you know, Mark's <laughs> a friend of mine, but you, you kicked his ass pretty good. I didn't expect, you know, well, Mark didn't make it to the, he, he ran yeah, to his yeah. own issues, but you know, yeah. when you file for office, you like, you know, what's going to happen here. So you, you took on that, that uh, you had courage to take that on. I, I brought you on this week because I want to talk to you about a few things. And the first is the obvious, you know, this week's failed coup attempt from our president where his supporters stormed the Capitol. Walk us through that day and the very real fear that members felt as we saw an armed insurrection seek to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. How did you feel about that, knowing that those are your former hallways and, and many of your former colleagues? Uh, you know, a whole host of emotions, uh, man. It, it was it was a very, very emotional day. And I, I feel like my heart was being pulled in a lot of different directions. Number one, concern for the safety and well-being of, you know, my former colleagues, my friends, my former staff who had taken jobs with other members who were on lockdown. I was texting, calling, trying to figure out if they're okay. So there's the concern about about, about the well-being of, uh, of folks up there. There's also the anger uh, that, that, this, that this happened. Yeah. And that, you know, and, and what... Anybody who did not see this coming based on the, you know, the, <laughs> the actions and the words of this president has had their head in the sand. And Man, we have a old, we have an old Negro proverb, Joe, that says we we tried to tell you. So we, everybody, <laughs> everybody knew this was going to happen, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, these folks have been just consuming this garbage about conspiracy theories and stolen elections. And and, and look, you, you think about it, like if you believe that, you know, you'd probably be upset, too. Uh, but but the blame lies, you know, at the top there with the president for, for spewing these and the people who've been coddling him over the last mm-hmm. four years, you know, the people that have not stood up and used their platform. And you know, Bakari, you have a platform and you have a duty and obligation to use that in an effective manner and honest manner and to advocate for change in a positive direction. And other people want to use that in a different direction. So House Democrats are going to be putting up impeachment articles on Monday Tell me this. What what are your thoughts about impeaching the president at this point? How, what would you be doing or saying if you were still roaming the halls of Congress today? Yeah, I mean, I, I was there for the first time around, you know. Uh, <laughs> tough vote. Saw, it was a tough I saw, vote. I saw, yeah. I saw this show the first time. And what we saw was, was disappointing on the Senate side. Because, yeah, look, I, I want this president, you know, out of office. And um, I, I'm concerned about what he'll do in the final days of this presidency. And but I'm I'm also a realist and knowing that you know we we impeach him we, and a lot of us took a uh, you know took political hits and took personal hits for for voting on that but we voted our conscience and we voted what we thought was was best for our country and uh, the Senate failed us the Senate just you know Mitch McConnell specifically by refusing to call witnesses um, we've seen the lack of courage from so many people and I think that throughout this process folks are going to show the American people who they really are. And I don't think history is going to judge them in a favorable light. I mean, for people who say that there are only a few days left in the Trump administration, what's the point of impeachment? What do you tell them? How do you respond to that? A lot can happen in a few days. Look at, look at what's happened in the last few days, you know, up, up there at the Capitol. 
and seeing those images and those videos are just are shocking, especially for me, you know, having spent so much time up there and, 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 and worked up there. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, we're all going to be sitting on the edge of our seat during the last few days. And I think, you know, tw- Twitter and Facebook by suspending his account, you know, based on him and him promoting these conspiracy theories and, 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 you know, we didn't talk about the, the, the falsehoods he spread about COVID, but, um, yeah, probably should have happened a while back. But each day, each day goes by. I think we're all on the edge of our seat, anticipating what else could happen. You know, yeah. during the Trump presidency. And you know, when when you when you think about what else can happen, I mean, I I am I'm kind of taken aback. Can you walk us through the steps of how an investigation would look into a matter like this? Do you know? Does anybody know what what happens here now that you know the the halls of Congress have been breached in the way that they have? I mean, they even found Congressman Clyburn's secret office up there. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I've been reading about that, and and look, Bakari, I mean, you, you spent some time up there. Look, I, I was up there for two years, and it took me a while to find my way to the you know to the the Capitol from Correct. the Cannon Building. There's so yeah, many tunnels get- underneath. I mean, you get turned around very quickly and for somebody to find their way up the Clyburn's you know unmarked office or make a beeline to uh, you know to to Pelosi's desk. I mean, you, you have to you have to kind of know your way around there. Um, Something, yeah, something untoward, as as Jim said, is happening in this situation. But how do you even investigate it? What happens here? You know, I think you probably know as best as I would. I would imagine that it had to be an independent investigation come in through the, I don't know if it's uh, the, the FBI or the, or the DOJ or, or who. I'm not sure exactly who has jurisdiction over that. But um, I would imagine it had to be an, an independent agency that comes in and takes a full look unveiled look at the actions of the you know capitol hill police and everything that occurred yeah. i think i think this warrants it you know i was talking to the state legislators uh, here in charleston yesterday and and you know you 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 were you worked up there in columbia it's it's personal on two accounts number one because your friends and colleagues work there and number two there's also some symbolism there about yeah, it being the, so. the heart of our democracy and so it's something that, that warrants a, a full investigation as to what happened. So let's talk about your time in Washington. You're a moderate Democrat in a relatively conservative district in a deeply conservative state. Is that an accurate reflection? I think. <laughs> yeah, I think you can take out the relatively uh, in the conservative <laughs> district. Um, you were you were in a House caucus, though, that most Americans understand through the prism of its more notable progressive members, particularly Nancy Pelosi and AOC. Talk about being a Democrat representing a district like that in a party where its progressive wing is increasingly vocal and growing in influence, but occasionally out of step with where most voters are. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, there was over 100 members elected in, in my class in the 116th Congress. And you know, not all of them Democrats, but the majority of them were. And, you know, in the very early stages, it's always uh, interesting to see certain folks get a lot of attention when, you know, the majority by the numbers of people who won the, just these incredible races, uh, if, you know, people like Abigail Spamberger, Max mm-hmm. Rose, Ben McAdams, Sochi Tour Small, um, you know, are, are really great people who, who beat the odds, you know, in, in races that no one thought we could win. And, there were more of them coming in who are more center left than the far left. And, you know, we're, we're proud of, we, we just try to focus on the things that we got done, the accomplishments that we were able to, uh, to get pushed through. And a lot of folks don't understand the kind of, you know, the challenges of we're in gerrymandered district, you know, in South Carolina, 
And we, we also have straight ticket voting here. There are processes set up that are just put in place for one reason, one reason alone, to favor Republicans. And, you know, when you draw, you know, Bakari, we, we, and we've talked about this at length, when you draw these lines to pick their voters as opposed to voters picking their politicians, you set up a just a, a, a terrible system. And a lot of times, especially here in Charleston, is done along racial boundaries. Uh, and how far, I mean, are we ever getting to the point of having an independent commission draw these lines? You know, they're going to put forth a beer bill on the uh, beer. I put forth a beer. Yeah, uh, let's put forth a beer after the <laughs> show for sure. They're, they're going to put forth a bill, I guess, uh, here in the next few months. And we're going to see. I, I, don't, I don't expect it, though. I don't expect it in the near future here in, um, in South Carolina, you know, because and so it's something that's not getting enough attention because these are, these are the rules and they set the stage for everything that happens after. And, you know, it, it gerrymandering, I can draw so many of our political evils back to gerrymandering. I agree. You know, uh, I've seen it firsthand up in, up in D.C., but until you have folks with, with courage and conviction serving in the state house and, and responsible for drawing these lines or changing leadership, you're just not going to see it. You know, I always tell people that, and I, I was on the uh, election law subcommittee, so I traveled around the state and we drew these lines. People mm-hmm. forget that it's your state legislatures that draw your your house, uh, your state house, state senate, and your congressional districts. Right. Um, and I always tell people that you shouldn't have legislators drawing their own seats because what's their number one priority? Getting mm-hmm. reelected. So, you know, this it's never a good a good mix. Now, this is a little tougher question, but we've you know, we we won the House and we flipped the Senate. Um, but as you know better than most, Democrats lost a lot of seats in the House. Um, and down-ballot Democrats across the country had a tough night this past November. What should Democrats take away from this past cycle? And how should Democrats, particularly moderate Democrats like you and myself, navigate this post-Trump reality? Well, I, I, th- I think, uh, you know, there are some things uh, specific to South Carolina that, that played against this. You know, the straight ticket voting. We're only, uh, I think you can count the states on one hand who do straight ticket voting. And so many people go into the voting booth and vote just with their party. They pick. And, and 62% of people in Beaufort County, I heard, which is the, you know, uh, county in the southern part of our district, 62% went in and voted straight Republican ticket. Mm-hmm. They didn't give a courtesy glance to what their state reps uh, or local reps or, you know, or even, even their congressman, uh, as to what you know, what they've accomplished or would accomplish. So there's that these processes that are in place that are impediments into uh, Democrats gaining ground. Secondly, look, I think this past week has been an example as to the consequences that words and actions from some Republicans have had. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, there needs to be some serious soul searching. And, and I think Democrats need to pose the question to Republicans from coast to coast saying, is this what you want? And I think that the Democrats also have to show them an alternative, you know, and and have it have that focus on bringing us through this pandemic, focusing on, you know, racial justice, better health care system, uh, you know, driving down the cost of, of, of higher education. I mean, there's so many different things that Democrats have been champions on these issues. And this is just basically giving us room to talk about those and present this contrast. You have these folks who are spreading conspiracy theories and, you know, talking about QAnon and, and talking about stolen elections. Mm-hmm. And then you have Democrats who are, who are trying to, um, you know, like I said, trying to advance the ball down the field and talk about at, making actual changes that makes people's lives better and talking about kitchen table issues. And I think that we should really take advantage of this opportunity to speak to what we want to accomplish and how we want to make the lives of Americans better. So I've had a, a few people on the show 
um, talk about the issue of defund the police. I mean, I know our congressman, Congressman Clyburn, was adamant that defunding the police cost us house seats this cycle. But I've had other guests on the show who have shown, for example, that there's really no analytics or data to back that up because that we lost seats because of this issue, as opposed to, let's say, Trump being a down ballot turnout machine. Senators elect Ossoff and Warnock had defund thrown at them 24-7, but they still won. Why is policing such a difficult issue for so many Democrats to tackle? And what's your advice to Democrats running in more moderate districts and statewide around the issue of policing and defund the police? Yeah, I mean, look, we've seen that as a scare tactic. And we saw it, I think we even saw that in our 2018 election, you know, as, as it relates to like, uh, you know, immigration. There are all these scare tactics that Republicans are always going to try. And they're always going to try to take you know, the most extreme voice of one person in one party and paint everybody with that broad brush. And uh, it's a matter of, um, number one, fighting back and telling people exactly where you stand, but but also uh, not letting people define you either. Yeah. And, I, and I don't know how much, you know, I think folks knew where we stood on the issue, but in, in, in 2020 with President Trump at the top of the ballot, I, I just think that most people just went to their own partisan corners. And you know, as it relates to those Georgia races, uh, those runoffs, I, I think, you know, of course, we're still unpacking a lot of data, but not having Trump at the top of the ticket. Um, uh, and, then, and then having Trump telling people that the Georgia election was stolen uh, was probably uh, a reason why not as many of his supporters showed up. You know, I, I look back at it and one of my things about Democrats, and this kind of ties into my next question, is you kind of have to go big because you know, regardless, everything that you listed off, you write it off as things that we've done good for the country, like try mm-hmm. to lower the prices of higher education, you know, lower the prices of prescription drugs, pass infrastructure bills, you know, improve our healthcare system. They're going to call you a socialist anyway, right? We saw that down in Georgia. So you but might as well, yeah, you yeah. might as well go ahead and do it. Well, they're, they're, they're going to continue to lie about you. And, you know, I think that, um, uh, so long as you're able to get your message out and, and get out and connect to people. That's another thing too. I think that hurt, us personally in 2020, I think there's a lot of uh, assumptions we made about this, this race, you know, that, you know, about COVID and things like that, but not being able to get out and meet people where they were yeah. and touch people, it, you know, you know, it, it kind of the retail uh, politics and, and show people uh, that, that we just want to make their lives better. And we, and we've got some, some great ideas and putting those forward. But well, that's one of the things I think that hurts particularly in 2020 though. You know, after Georgia, a lot of us started dusting off our, progressive kind of wish list for things we want to see done, whether or not it's D.C. and Puerto Rican statehood, legalizing marijuana, which is something I think we need to do. You know, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of issues that we kind of said, these priorities that we said now that we have, you know, a Senate majority, we want to get done. But more realistically, the first two years of this administration uh, will be COVID and maybe some voting rights and policing and maybe something on infrastructure. What do you think we get done in the next Congress in the first two years of a Biden administration? I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I think, you know, COVID relief, uh, you know, and vaccine distribution and getting, you know, both our physical and economic health, uh, back to hundred percent. And also, also, you know, look at healing some of our structural issues with, you know, racial justice, police reform, voting rights. I mean, I mean, carrying on a legacy of John Lewis, um, mm-hmm. you know, we lost it, lost the giant. You served uh, with John. Talk to me about that. Talk tell me about your John Lewis stories. Hey man, he's, uh, he was the man. He, he was the, he was the man. What, what can you say? You know, my, my brother uh, Lou came up and visited me, and uh, you know, when people come and visit you, like you like, yeah, you know, is there anybody you want to meet? Anybody you want me to pull out for a picture? And he had one person. He said John Lewis. 
was like, all right, I'll go down there to the house for and I grab John's and my brother's back here. He wants to meet you. Pull John back there, takes a picture of my brother and my brother starts, you know, trying to talk to him about all the civil rights history and stuff. And, and John just keeps throwing it back on either me or asking my brother about himself. I mean, he was just a, just a gentleman and just a giant. And, you know, I took my niece down there to Selma to march across the Pettus bridge. Um, I guess like, you know, last year. And, uh, it's the last time that, uh, John marched across that bridge and it was just, uh, it was an, it was an honor to be able to serve with him and, and be able to share some of these, uh, some of these experiences with him. And, and just, um, I think it gave a lot of people, everybody who's, life he touched he gave an inspiration to and a, and a motive and reason to fight even harder for racial justice for voting rights and the things that he cared about you know what's the power of the moderate wing i guess or moderate members of the party as we go into this you know it's very it's real close up there i mean it's a hair it's a lot it's a, it, it, it's a lot you know uh, folk, groups like a lot of these small groups have a lot of power but blue dogs um you know th- those those folks who want to, you know, because oftentimes, you know, policy and legislation is drafted uh, in certain committees, which are more progressive or more liberal. And, you know, it's, it's the moderates who kind of may bring it back to, you know, kind of make it, make it more, I guess, moderate for lack of a better word. Um, and so I think they have a lot of influence and they will have a lot of influence. I mean, these, a lot of votes are going to be, you know, razor thin margin. We had a comfortable majority in the 116th Congress, this time it's not going to be the case. So I think that's probably going to drive, you know, you may not see, you know, the, um, you may see, you may see less sweeping changes than you did 10 years ago or so. But, um, but I think, you know, any repairs to the ACA, you can still get a lot of things through, uh, obviously with the majority, but it may not be as, as sweeping as some people in the party may want it to be. You know, when you think about what happened this past week and the insurrection that happened, um, I don't know if you saw the video recently uh, that we aired on CNN, but there was the cop who was, you know, smashed in the the el- in the elevator in the glass door. Um, yeah. You had one cop who was uh, hit on the head with a fire extinguisher that subsequently died. You had other cops who were hit with metal pipes. You had people arrested for having Molotov mm-hmm. cocktails. You just think about everything that we saw last week based on misinformation, trying to overturn an election that wasn't close. Then you had them try to kidnap a, a sitting governor and Governor Whitmer in, in Michigan. Um, you have an entire disinformation structure. Um, you know, you, you didn't get a chance to serve with her, but Majorie Green, for example, who's a QAnon right. goddess who is now in the in the in the United States Congress. I, I feel like this is, and I don't want to use the word war, but this is this is something unlike we've ever seen before. But I'm not sure that Democratic leadership has taken on this mentality we're not laser focused on trying to root this out. And we're just talking about uh, a lot of healing and unity and which seems to be out of place at the moment. What am I missing? No, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we, and look, I spent my time up there preaching about bipartisanship and bringing people together. Uh, I think you can still, and, but, we, but on my last four speech, I talked, you know, I talked a lot about bipartisanship, but I also call people out for this, um, you know, the people who worship uh, President Trump and will do everything they say. I had so many of my colleagues who are Republicans come up and say, like, you know, that they, they, <laughs> they think he's a joke. And but but the fact is that he's more popular in their district than they are. And so they have to attach themselves. They have to. And if they come out against them on anything, they're a leper. That's what they told me. And, 
you know, you can be bipartisan and you can work with people, but still call people out for their antics and still call people out for their dangerous rhetoric and divisive behavior that tears our country apart as moral fabric. And especially when, it re- as it relates to you know, these conspiracy theorists and, and QAnon supporters, you know, you can still try to bring people together, but at the same time, calling out liars and calling out people who are basically fanning the flames of, of uh, tribalism and partisanship up there. And and I, think, I think you have and to. Violence. And, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I mean, where do people think this was going to end when, when, when the president Trump is, is, is call, you know, calling these people great Americans and patriots and inviting them to come up to DC on the basis that election was stolen. You know, you're inviting people to our nation capital under the premise that election was stolen. I mean, what'd you, what'd you expect? And then you had uh, Rudy Giuliani saying that we're going to have a trial by combat. We're having the president saying you got to march down there. I mean, did you feel? I mean, I, I guess you say you saw this coming, but what was the tenor? I saw I saw Connor Lamb just you know kind of get yeah, <laughs> get yeah. a little rowdy I, I heard, on the floor. I, I, I heard it almost came to blows on the house floor. I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end. Connor's got some long arms. I play basketball <laughs> with him, and, and and he's you know there's there's probably not you know he's a pretty lean guy. Um, like I said, I. Last few days, I, I've, I've had a lot of emotions, so I, I get it, that frustration. And, you know, I one, of my, one of my colleagues turned the Republicans as these people were beating down doors, telling them, you all did this. This is your fault. The people who, I mean, that's an intense situation. People are beating down the doors and, and crashing glass to get in to presumably harm these members of Congress. And it's all done because of the tweets and the, the speeches and the videos that, that certain Republicans have posted saying the election was stolen and it's us versus them. And, you know, I mean, mean, I, 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 you know, I got to say this, you don't, you don't have to say this per se, they were part of your delegation, but, but even Jeff Duncan and Joe Wilson and William Timmons, like Timmons knows better. Like this is not, Timmons is not like. William's an attorney. You know, he's a smart guy. And, and, and yeah, I mean, and whether or not you're attorney or not, everyone should know and teach your children that words have consequences, consequences, you know? I mean, that's what we teach our little ones, right? And you can't yeah. just you can't just say this shit and not expect for for uh, you know somebody to show up and try to harm someone else. Um, you know, I put yeah, it and I, I, and I I remind folk all the time. I mean, it, it, we had more people die at this insurrection on Wednesday than died in Benghazi, and it it it, it rests at the feet of these elected officials who did not understand that their words have con- right. con- consequences. Right. Right. So yeah, it's everybody from Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz to William Timmons yeah. and Jeff Duncan. I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah. And, and I got to say, Bakari, like, you know, certain people have started to give props to these Republicans who come out and criticize the president in the in 11th hour. And I think that's bullshit. I think that, I think that these, these folks who have coddled him for the last four years and, and only now have seen the, you know, uh, seen the light yeah. or have only now been, been touched. The, the folks who only waited for blood to be shed before, before they, they came out. Light. Yeah. Yeah. And, and two weeks before uh, he left office, I, and I, was, I, was, you know, I was trying to wrap my head around it the other night. Like why, why now, why now would these elected officials come out and can, you know, and condemn this violence? And cause we remember the rallies that, that the president held where he told people punch him in the face. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's about. How I forgot about that. About. Literally, yeah. I, forgot, I forgot about. Yeah, that. I mean, it, the last four years have been such a whirlwind. But you know, what is the difference? Why now did they come out as opposed to then? And the only thing I can come up with uh, was that until they were directly threatened, directly threatened by violence, did they come out? And it it, it makes you believe that 
you know, their only concern is fighting for themselves. Whereas Democrats have been fighting for others the whole time, you know? I, I mean, it's crazy, man. But before I let you go, I, I got to ask, I mean, we're both proud South Carolinians and we saw Georgia finally flip this year, mm-hmm. but we had massive losses. I mean, our good friend, Jamie Harrison lost by 10 points. Uh, you suffered a close defeat, but you'll be back. How do we rebuild the democratic brand in South Carolina? And what's the recipe, so to speak, for Democrats to win statewide in South Carolina? It feels like, I know the demographics, right? But I, I don't necessarily want the demographics. We know what those, that the changes that have to be kind of made and the things that have to happen. But Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Georgia, mm-hmm. it's all happening right around us. What's the <laughs> recipe that we can we can start to see some change here in South Carolina? A loaded question, man. Um, <laughs> that's one to end on. I mean, well, I, think, I think. I think. I mean, th- that's the second to last question, by the way, Joe. Okay. I mean, okay. I, I well, firmly. I mean, I think statewide. I mean, like, I think that like you, you juiced as much turnout as you did. We didn't see that same juice come out the sixth. I think that people have to. You always have to run races, um, yeah. and I think that you know when you're getting when you're getting you know the same when you're getting beat as bad in Pickens County as you as you are in Orangeburg County, that doesn't bode well for statewide success. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, I think 2020 was, was yeah, it, it was it was a wave where the president carried a lot of, you know, carried a lot of people's water. But I do think we have to look at some, some surrounding states and find out what, you know, look at what they're doing. Rip a page out of Stacey Abrams playbook, you know, start early with the foundation. But um, also, I think we have to go into every reach and every corner of the state and, and show people. And I think what, what's happened the last few days, like, like, we, like we started the discussion earlier, has pulled back the curtain on, you know, some of these Republican politicians and showing exactly who they are, you know, with, uh, by, uh, by having their words fan these flames of, of basically violence. So I think it's given, it's given Democrats an opportunity to present an alternative. And I think we got to take advantage of that opportunity to present that alternative, let people know what we stand for. Um, and also, like I said, look at surrounding states and figure out what they're doing mechanically and figure out how we can replicate that here in South Carolina. So what's next for you governor in 2022 or what? I don't know, you know, probably dinner later on here tonight uh, in, in the short term. That's not a far, no, but I'll tell you. As far as, no, as far as, far as politically, I mean, I'm, look, I'm, I'm only, uh, you know, what, a week, 10 days out, out of office. Um, I, I'm going to open up my, uh, my practice again. And uh, look, I'm, I'm going I'm to continue to serve in whatever capacity I can, whatever I'm able to. And I'll tell you, Bakari, this election, you know, Losing by a point, it, it hasn't broken my spirit, and I want to continue to serve the people. And I don't know what role that's going to be in, uh, but I'm going to take the next few months to, you know, think about it and um, and look at how I can best be of service to, to the people of South Carolina, how we can, you know, push forward here in our state. And uh, because we have a long ways to go, as you know, we're we're uh, we're we fall behind in, in so many different areas of being education or racial justice or infrastructure or healthcare. I mean, you name it. So I'm I'm not I'm not leaving the field yet. Well, there we go. Well, Joe, I just want to say thank you, brother. Whatever you decide to do, I'm on your team. You know, I, I uh, am someone who applauded your staff asking us. How many pieces of legislation did you pass while you were up there? Two whole bills, but but uh, numerous other amendments and, and things like that. And, and, and you know, well, even say, those two people don't even know that that's that's a tough tough task for a freshman yeah. up there. In a divided Congress too, and uh, and I, I appreciate everything you've done, though. And you come down to, to campaign with us back in 2018 Man, when no one thought guy. we had a we had a snowball's chance in hell of winning this thing, and and there you are in the trail with us. I appreciate uh, 
I'm back yeah, for you. I'm back with you in uh in 2022, whatever you decide to do, my brother. Everybody, Joe Cunningham, thank you for joining the Bukari Sellers podcast, my brother. Thanks for having me, Bukari. Before I let go, I love singing the outro to this. I wanted to talk about last week's failed coup, but in a different context. And that context is D.C. statehood. And I'm sure almost all of you know the District of Columbia isn't a state. It's a district. What that means is D.C. has no senators. And in the House of Representatives, D.C. has what's called a delegate, someone who can vote in committee and propose legislation, but they can't vote on the floor. So literally every decision affecting Americans that requires Congress to vote, D.C. residents don't have a vote despite paying the same federal taxes that we all pay. And per capita, D.C. residents pay more federal taxes than any state in the country per resident. So that means given the size of D.C., roughly 705,000 residents, the amount of money they send to the U.S. government per resident is more than any other state in the country. But still, no vote on how these dollars are spent if you're a D.C. resident. Last week also reminded us how uniquely vulnerable the district is to white supremacist domestic terrorism. It's the nation's capital. So it's where protesters go. And post-Trump, we should anticipate that we'll continue to see these kinds of riots on federal buildings, including the Capitol. We've already seen threats of a million militia march before the inauguration. So last week was just the beginning of a new violent chapter in our nation's history, not the end. But unfortunately, because D.C. isn't a state, they don't control their National Guard. Because if you recall, anytime there are riots where you live, your governor has an armed National Guard that can respond in addition to local law enforcement unless you live in D.C. Because if you live in D.C., your National Guard is controlled by none other than the President of the United States, not the person you elect to run the district in Mayor Muriel Bowser. Now, it's my understanding that the District of Columbia and Mayor Bowser asked the administration for support for the Capitol and other protests on December 31st, knowing what would happen. The administration didn't respond until January 4th and didn't grant the request until the Capitol had pretty much been breached. Trump political appointees at the Pentagon, not the mayor of D.C., set the number of D.C. National Guard members that would be deployed to the Capitol building. So they intentionally limited how many people could support Capitol Police, knowing what was going to happen on Wednesday and effectively encouraging it. Trump political appointees at the Pentagon, not the mayor of D.C., limited where the Guard could go and approved the request well after it was too late, knowing full well what was likely to happen and actively encouraging it. The district needs a state and run by a governor for a lot of reasons, but mainly because it needs to be able to defend itself. And that means having control of its National Guard to respond to riots from Trump rioters and to defend the Capitol and other federal buildings when it needs it. We can't leave our nation's Capitol and our Capitol building vulnerable like this again. And that starts with D.C. statehood. We'll see you on Thursday where we'll talk the NFL playoffs with my good friend, neighbor, NFL legend, analyst, none other than London Fletcher and we out. Good.